These things are sensitive. How's that? Yeah? Okay, I've got the highest music stand in the world. Do you want to hide behind it? Is it this one? Okay. Yeah, nearly. Nearly. Okay. All right. Morning. Just to warn you, actually, it might be a good idea. Do, do you think we could, I don't want to be Hitlerish, but do you think we could just clear these two rows here? I'll tell you why. We're going to have loads of people streaming in about 11.30, thinking they're really on time and really happy with themselves, that they made it for 10.30, but it's actually 11.30. And then we're going to have loads who come to 11.45, because they normally come at 10.45, um, happy with themselves that they made it before 11, but it's not before 11. And they're going to be in this dilemma, where do I sit? And there'll be no sits near to them. So can we create a block, maybe? Maybe even the first three rows. Is that okay? Just to help these guys find their way in. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, if I... <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm proved wrong here, then you can call me a cynic. All right? So, but, you know, there's just, it's been a couple of years now, and you kind of get a feel for some of these things. So... Um, it, that could well happen. So, um, okay, and um, yeah, and let's not make them feel too bad when they come. Let's just carry on as if they haven't just walked in and just. It's actually quite unfortunate to walk in halfway through the sermon on a day like today because of the subject we're looking at, which is one of those subjects which people often bring up. And the reason I'm preaching on this is because about three weeks ago, in a question and answer session, someone asked this question. And the question is, what about those who never hear the gospel? What happens to them? What about those who, you know, either due to the country that they live in, they live under a regime where there's freedom of speech is not allowed, or they live under a, under a regime where even um, any other religion except Islam is illegal, or any religion is seen as a threat, maybe under a communist regime. What happens to those? What about those who were around before Jesus came? The millions who never heard anything about the coming one. Um, and so we've got to, we're going to tackle that one today, um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll do a good job of it. Um, and we will have some opportunity for questions and answers afterwards. Um, but before we, before we really go any further, just to say, if, if, you, if you or someone you know has asked that question, what about those who don't hear? It's a good sign. It means they've understood two things. It means they've understood, firstly, that when Christians speak about Jesus, they are claiming that only Jesus can save. Okay? So they're claiming that Allah won't do, they're claiming that Buddha won't do, they're exactly claiming that. And so if someone says, but you're, hold on, what about those who don't hear? That's a good sign. It means they've heard that we're not just saying that Jesus is a good idea or that Jesus is a good option, but Jesus is the way. Secondly, it means they've, they've understood that there is, a, there is a message to be heard, believed, responded to. Absolutely. It's not just kind of some vague idea, philosophy of life. There's a concrete message which needs to be heard so that it can be believed, so that it can change your life. So if someone asks the question, it's genu- generally a good sign they've understood something of what, of what we're saying. Maybe you're here today and you've asked the question and maybe you're not yourself. You're not convinced that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not ready to say you're a Christian at this stage, but you, you're, you thought, look, it doesn't make sense because what about the millions who never hear? So it's a good question to ask and that's what we're going to look at. Um, in fact, if we look at our first scripture, this is very helpful in terms of just setting the scene from Romans 10, which should come up magically behind me. 
but isn't. Let me just face it. Here we go. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> have, you, have you enjoyed the light evening tonight? Sorry. <laughs> how then will they call on him? How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Exactly the same question. It's exactly the same thing. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul raised it up. We're saying people must believe, but to believe they've got to hear. To hear, someone's got to speak. Absolutely right. This is completely the case. This is the logic of the Bible. People need to hear the gospel. So what's the problem? The problem's the church. The church doesn't speak about Jesus enough. The church goes quiet on Jesus way too much. There are, there are, there are three main reasons why. And we need to understand these reasons. It's very, very important we, we understand the reasons why so that we can address them in our lives and repent. Because we've been commissioned by the one that we call Lord and the one that we call Master. He has commissioned us to preach. That means declare, proclaim the gospel to all creation. It's a real commission, which means that if we don't do it, the repercussions are real. If we do not go to the whole of creation to preach that gospel, people will not hear and will not be saved. The kingdom of God advances to the degree that the church is faithful, living out and proclaiming the gospel. Absolutely. That is how the kingdom of God moves forward when the church lives like Jesus and, and, and speaks about Jesus. It's vital. We failed for three reasons. Number one, faulty theology. A few centuries ago, there was something very common, a common way of thinking which we call hyper-Calvinism, and it goes something like this. It's faulty, by the way, <laughs> before you think I'm preaching this. But it goes something like this. Because God knows the end from the beginning, because God has chosen those who are going to be saved, God knows who will be saved and who won't be saved, God has predestined people for salvation since the beginning of time, therefore, there's no actual need to, to, to go and tell people about um, Jesus, because if they've been predestined, they're going to be saved anyway. Okay, so William Carey, who was a very famous missionary in the 18th century, well, before he was a missionary, he was a, he was a shoe mender, but he wanted to go to India as a missionary. He went to a mission board and said, look, will you support me? I think maybe it was a particular church denomination. And they said something like this to him. I can't quote it perfectly, but something like this. Um, if God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it with or without your help. Or he'll do it without your help. It's like, if God wants to do that, then, you know, he's, he doesn't need you, young man. They've taken a biblical doctrine and taken it to somewhere where the Bible doesn't go and created a caricature out of it. So faulty theology. Secondly, worldliness. It's inconvenient to reach the ends of the world with the gospel. It's inconvenient. And people, Christians, very often fall in love with this present age. They fall in love with the comforts of this present age, with the promises that this present age says, you can have this, you can have a good life, you can have a nice life. And so the thought of going to so-and-so to reach these people, you know, you stump some of the areas where people have never been reached by the gospel, you think, man, that's going to be hard geographically to even get there. That's going to be hard culturally to live among those people and adapt. That's going to be hard socially. My social life is going to be affected by that. And there can be this love for the present world, which means you just don't go. 
And really, I would say one of the main problems with the church is that there tends to be plenty of money to support missionaries, but not enough people who actually want to go. And this is a problem. Because you can have all the money in the world, but you need the people who are actually willing to go. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is, I would say, fear or discouragement caused by either opposition or apathy. So you get a zealous Christian who tells people about Jesus, but they're either bitterly opposed or they just meet apathy and they get discouraged. They think, what's the point? And they go quiet. And so then they begin, to, they begin to secretly hope that God will bring along some other zealous believer to come and witness where they are in the workplace, on campus or wherever. So the three reasons, faulty theology, a love for the present age, and uh, finally fear and discouragement. And so I would say the blame lies squarely at the church's feet. We need to grow up into our commission and take seriously our responsibility for the nations. We need to reach the nations in our locality and look to see many of those that are reached go back to their nation with the gospel. And some of us will ourselves go to the ends of the earth to plant churches and preach the gospel. We need to grow up into that. If every church grew up into that, we could do this thing. There are currently about 5,000 people groups that are still unreached in the world. They've never heard the gospel. You need, five, you need the church globally to put together 5,000 teams that will go, that will learn the language, that will translate the Bible, that will go and live among these people, and that will plant a church and see indigenous churches raised up that can multiply into that culture. That's what we need to do. And I know it's so big, you can think, well, I hope they do it, because you think it's too big for us, but I understand that alone as a congregation we can't do it, but we can certainly contribute, can't we? We can certainly contribute by reaching out to people in our locality, telling them about Jesus, and by getting behind those in the congregation who want to go to the nations. Not only that, our nation needs re-evangelising. And many European nations have no idea what the gospel is and need re-evangelising. So the ends of the earth is kind of slightly, there's some nuances to it. It's not just this black and white thing, we're not the ends of the earth, you know, that is, no, no. Really, every generation needs to hear the gospel afresh. Because even those that have a Christian heritage tend to just get into dead religion. And once you get into that, well, you're in trouble. This is why we run the missionary training as a church. We run a three-week we run a three-week course a few times a year just to train up every member of the church as a missionary. We're all called to go. We're currently running it now. In our second week, just getting everyone who comes in new, come along, we want to mobilise you. We want to get this into your DNA. We must reach the lost. This is vital. This is why we're getting behind the Rileys. Send them out and getting behind them. There's others in the church that are here right now that will be getting behind in the next few years, sending out and supporting. It's so important that we do so. So, so there's the problem. The problem is the church and the main to just be humble and own up to that and say we need to, we need to really get onto this and really keep repenting on it. But I want to look at the answer and the, and the solution because it doesn't actually answer the question, but what about those who don't hear? That's what I'm going to do for the rest of our time this morning, answer that question. I'm going to do so by looking at the character of God. Because you can only satisfactorily answer this question by looking at God, then it begins to make sense. So, number one, the glory of God. And this isn't going to be kind of like, oh, some weird thing up there that never actually hits, hits the issue. This will hit it. This will hit it thoroughly. The glory of God. What is glory? Glory is majesty. Glory is splendour. Glory is um, supremacy. 
The glory of God is the radiance of God. It's his shininess, if you like. Another word for glory is weight. It's his weight, it's his substance, it's his being. Everyone agrees that if there is a God, he's glorious. Even the atheists agree, if there is a God, he's glorious. Richard Dawkins, he said as much, if there is a God, he's way beyond anything we could imagine. How can I stand before you and say, everyone agrees that if there is a God, he's glorious? Creation. Creation, that's how I can say that. It never ceases to amaze me how enthralled we are with creation. Wildlife, oceans, rainforests, mountains. Discovery Channel is very popular. Have you, anyone seen David Attenborough's new, um, new series? I tell you, it's unmissable. It's fantastic. Just goes and follows polar bears one weekend. Just, people love it. Our walls are lined with images of creation. Everyone agrees creation is highly impressive. Where we differ is on who gets the credit. So the atheist gives the credit to creation itself for creation. The Christian looks on and thinks that's just about as insulting as applauding a John Constable painting without giving any reference to John Constable. You know, it's kind of like, man, this is a bit odd. Um, So where we differ is in who gets the credit. But everyone agrees if there is a God, he is glorious. Romans 11 verse 36 says this, says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. He is awesome. Everything you have ever experienced has issued from him. Everything you currently experience is coming through him. He upholds all things by the word of his power. All the glory of that will ultimately go back to him. He is beyond imagination. And so the point is this. His decision on those who haven't heard will be magnificent. His decision on those who have never heard the gospel will be thrilling. It will be perfect. It will be awe-inspiring. It will make you want to sing. Because he is utterly glorious. Now you might think, that sounds aloof. That just sounds like, well, what about the actual people? Is, it, is this an aloof thing? No, it's not. Look at John 1 verse 14. It says this, talking about Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God's glory is most clearly seen, if you like, most obviously seen in creation, but it's most vividly seen in the incarnation, when God became flesh, when he said, I'm willing to humble myself and become just like you. When I'm willing to live, I mean, Jesus lived a life where he was tempted in every way. Every way. You might be here today thinking, you don't know what I'm going through. Jesus does. Jesus does. Every form of temptation you can face, not, every, not the same in every detail, but every form, whether it's seduction or whether it's pressure or whether it's opposition, he's faced it and he's come through. He knows what it's like. He can utterly sympathise with you. The John, John says he became flesh and you think at that point you think, well, the glory's gone. No, and we saw his glory. In his humility, you see his glory. In the fact that he's willing to become just like you, you see his glory. That he's willing to take on flesh. You see, he's full of grace. You see, there it is, full of grace, full of favour. He comes to show favour. He comes to become like you so he can get alongside you, strengthen you, and so he can make you anew. He comes, he humbles himself so that he can be all, all, all that he wants to be for you, so that he can, he can take on the role of sinful man in your place on the cross. He comes to show favour and he's full of truth. It's glorious. The glory of God is not some aloof thing. It's uniquely humble and it's magnificent. So God's glory 
is the foundation. Then you get the justice of God. Secondly, when Abraham was interceding with God over a city called Sodom that was in bad sin, but Abraham's cousin lived there, and so he's trying to intercede, knowing that this city deserves judgment, but knowing that his cousin Lot is righteous, and so he's praying to God, and he, he, he says this amazing quote, Genesis 18, verse 28. He says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of the whole earth? You've got to understand the character of God. If you're not rooted and anchored in God's character, then all of your kind of perceptions and conclusions that you come to will be off-centre. We need to be centred on him. The foundation of all salvation is justice. You know that? You might say, oh, I, thought it was, I thought it was grace. Well, yes, but it's also justice. In what sense? Well, why did God have to send his son? Why did the father have to bruise the son? Why did he have to crush him on the cross to satisfy his own justice that sin must not be swept under the carpet? The foundation of salvation is justice. The foundation of condemnation is justice. Some people say, if no one ever hears the gospel and then they go to hell, that's unfair. No, listen. They're not going to hell because they didn't hear the gospel. Why are they going to hell? Because they sinned against God. It's not because they didn't hear. That's not the reason why. The reason why is because they spent their life sinning against God. And so it's justice. So the foundation for salvation and condemnation is justice. When we look at salvation, it's got two elements to it. Firstly, it's God being vindicated. Secondly, it's us being rescued. Now, we tend to just focus on the second bit because it's more urgent. <laughs> we feel that, let's do the theology later. Let's get me saved, yeah? Which is, I understand that, yeah? It's about rescue. But actually, it's more importantly about God's vindication, that God is vindicated. That's actually more important. That God is shown to be right. Because if God's wrong, you are in major trouble. If God is wrong, creation is doomed. If God is immoral or amoral, you are in so much trouble. Someone has all power and no morals. You thought Hitler was bad. You are in trouble. You can't even believe a word he says if that's the case. Any promise of salvation, it's not worth anything. What is vital is that God is vindicated. What is vital is that he's shown to be right in all that he does. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's justice. It costs God to maintain his justice. There's no way God could have saved any one of us without giving Jesus. It cost him to maintain his justice, that his justice was satisfied through the cross. So we've got the glory of God, we've got the justice of God. God's decision will be right. And then next we've got the supremacy of God. We hate this. (laughs) We hate this. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What is Satan's promise to Eve? If you eat this fruit, you will be just like God. From that moment, something was sown into the heart of humanity that was, I want that place. Not necessarily that you want people to gather and sing songs to you. It's not that. It's more subtle than that. It's that you want to do what you want to do. And you want to decide what's right and wrong. And you want to decide what's best for you. And the whole time God is looking at you saying, that is idolatry. That's what I do. And yet we are encouraged to be like that by the world. Constantly encouraged through 
advertising, through others, through the general pervading philosophy, what we are encouraged is this. See yourself right. It's your life. You've got whole campaigns called, you know, your life, especially about um, the whole teenage um, thing in Camden um, regarding sex and safe sex. It's called It's Your Life. You think it's just going to be a disaster from the start because it's built on this sense of I'm first. Well, there you go. Crazy. The supremacy of God. The crux of the issue of those who haven't heard the gospel is God's supremacy. Have they put God first? That's the issue. Not have they heard. Have you put God first? That's the crux of the issue. So don't get to hear of the one who put God first on their behalf. Does this not hearing excuse them? No. No. Doesn't excuse the church for not fulfilling her commission either. Will be held to account, but it does not excuse the person. Does it make someone free from moral responsibility if they haven't heard? No. Why? The Bible says what, that God's nature is clear from creation. His divine power, and his divine nature and his eternal power are clear from what has been created. But what do we do? The Bible says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress it. It is a willful pushing down that then leads to unbelief and ignorance. But it's rooted in a willful, I don't want to know. I don't want to know about this God who is supreme. He's going to get in the way. He's going to get in the way because there's so many things I want to do with my life because it's my life. And I want to do things. And he might have other plans. Then what? I'm ruined. You you understand? Maybe Maybe you do. Maybe you hear what I'm saying here. So we have the supremacy of God. God must be first in all things. Then things are right. So we've got his glory, his justice, his supremacy. Then we have the wisdom of God. I love this. We don't speak about the wisdom of God enough. So many of your problems as a Christian and mine are that you do not trust in the wisdom of God. You don't trust his plan. You don't trust his will. How can I say that clearly? Because I know my own struggles with this. You want to make sure, uh, just be in charge, have a little bit of control, give him some, but keep some back just in case. In case his will isn't good, pleasing and perfect. In case it's going to hurt too much. In case it's going to cost too much. And so we, 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 we flip out from this simple childlike trust and we in, in start controlling and putting, making sure that we've got things in place. And it often comes out of a root of unbelief. We don't trust that he's wise. We don't trust that he knows what's best. We don't trust that it, because he doesn't do things when we want him to, does he? Does he? It's rare that he does things at the same timing as us, isn't it? So rare. You think, I've been praying about what's going on. He knows. But I've got a plan, Lord. Yeah, you have got a plan. Don't hold it too tight. It could really get you in trouble. (laughs) Nothing wrong with planning, but can't do it like that. Not like that. Don't carve it in the stone. This will happen then. You you will really be in trouble when it doesn't. You're emotionally, you'll be thrown, you'll be sulking, you'll be stomping. No, just say, it'd be great if this could happen, but not my will, yours be done. The wisdom of God. Romans 11 verse 33 says this. Oh, the depth, got a slide, Catherine? Thank you. Of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Don't you love the wisdom of God? The depth, the riches and the knowledge of it is fantastic. You know, God is completely aware of every situation. I am increasingly aware of my own blind spots in every situation I face. 
that I come in with my prejudice, with my background, all unintentional, I think my heart's right, but I'm bringing my prejudice, my background, my ignorance, my lack of understanding of the other person, that I speak too soon and don't listen long enough. I bring all of that in and I wonder why I can't work things out. (gasps) I think, well, I'm not getting this. Well, it's not really surprising. You don't get it. You don't get people. The Bible says that the heart of man is deep waters. It's deep waters. But the man of wisdom can draw it out. There's wisdom from God for us. There's God has a unique wisdom. He, when someone does something, he knows not just, he, he is as clear on their motives as he is in what they're doing. Man alive. What's it like when God sees things? He doesn't just see what you do. The whole time he sees just as clearly why you're doing it. kind of frightening, isn't it? Listen to this. Hebrews 4.13 says this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So we give an account, but the whole time he's there going, yep. Yeah, I knew that. Yep. (laughs) So we have to give an account because we're responsible, but he knows. He knows. And a look at his eyes of love when we start trying to duck it and sidestep it and draw us back to the truth where he knows. He's utterly wise. And it can be a frightening thing because we don't even know why we do things ourselves, do we? Listen to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yep, that's you. That's me. Deceitful and sick. Do you ever do things and think, why did I do that? God's not like that. He understands. Only he knows. Do not get yourself worked up in a wrong way about those who haven't heard. Get yourself worked up in the right way. I want to do something about it. But listen, God understands. When God, when we all have to give an account before God, he will look at each individual and will utterly understand Really, the opportunities, what light they had, what revelation they had, and he will judge them according to his perfect wisdom. He knows. He knows. You might be caught out by something. You need to trust him completely. You see wisdom most clearly in the cross. Listen to this amazing verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. What's been said here is this, is that through mankind's ever-increasing wisdom, we don't get to know God any better. We just get more and more firmly entrenched in our own strange ideas about, you know, there's no God. The Bible says that actually it was in the wisdom of God that that happened. God chose it that way. God predestined it that way. Why? So that through this foolish message, Salvation might come. You think, why? Why does God delight in saving for a foolish message? Sure, why? When, when he's done all this amazing stuff in creation, why this almost bizarre message of Christ crucified? Why would he want to save through that? Human pride. It's his opportunity to destroy human pride. You might think, that sounds a bit harsh. The best thing that can ever happen to you is for your pride to be destroyed. It is the best thing because it hinders you like crazy. Pride will hinder you in relationships. It will hinder you in decisions that you make. It will hinder you in, on every front. If you are proud, you will find God resisting you. You will find, you, you would just find that you're hitting your head up against the brick wall. You'll find your struggle 
bearing fruit. Why? Because pride is satanic. It's utterly satanic. It's horrible. So God loves to just humble us, not humiliate us. Although, if necessary, and if we don't learn, he will humiliate us in order to humble us. But his primary way is to teach us. And that's to humble ourselves. So we've got the wisdom of God. Then we've got the grace of God. Here's an issue. Deep down, some of us think that people either deserve to be saved or deserve to hear the message. No, they don't. No, they don't. It is even grace that you get to hear the message. It's grace. We are so caught up with our human rights, aren't we? <laughs> yeah? The European Bill of Human Rights. is really all, it's, What you find is, is that culture affects legislation, but then legislation exacerbates it and really brings it into the culture. So the whole human rights thing, there's good things in it. Yep. For the oppressed, for the vulnerable. Absolutely, it's great. But it's kind of, because it's not based in God, it's kind of got its bad side as well. And the bad side is this, is that you develop a, a value system where you basically feel it's your rights. And so you go out for a meal and the food's not great. And I've even been up and out with Christians and you go out for a meal and the food's a bit late coming and they get all uppity. And you think, oh my goodness. Now sure, you go in somewhere and you're paying for something. If the service is bad, then you may need to say something, but you need to be gracious and gentle and humble. But I've seen Christians get all uppity and all hot-tempered, and you're thinking, what, what on earth are you doing? Surely we... And, and then have the audacity to give thanks over the meals. If there's are humble in some way, we thank you, Lord, that the food has arrived. Shush. Go and deal with your attitude towards that person before you come and pray. Because it's just horrible. You're so up on your rights. And we're in a culture like that. If someone gets in the way of you, you just get all... Ooh, you trod on my toe. You see it in a, in, a, in a supermarket. Someone's toe gets trodden on. And it's bad language. And you think, what is this crazy? You've never trodden on someone's toe before? You've never done that? Well, it's not the point. It hurt me. And it's my toe. I've got the right to defend my toe. You think, what are you doing? You know, but it's this... And, and so deep down we have this thing. What about those who never heard the gospel? God can't condemn them. Yes, he can. He has every right to because they've sinned. Every right to. He has the rights. But we struggle with that. Let me give you an example from Scripture which might help you. Paul and Barnabas would go around the Greco-Roman world preaching the gospel and primarily to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. The Jews often resisted. They couldn't get it. Here's why they couldn't get it. Because Paul was preaching a crucified Messiah in Jewish Old Testament law, it says anyone who's hung to a tree is cursed by God. <laughs> so they're preaching God's anointed one has come, God's chosen favoured one, and he's been nailed to a tree, he's been cursed by God. So they're like, that's why Paul says to the Jews, as he crosses a stumbling block, they're like, this is bizarre. How do they, they can't put it together. So they frequently resist and oppose Paul. And so Paul, Paul says, so uh, they've just experienced this, and then listen to what Paul and Barnabas say in Acts 13. Where it says, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary, speaking to the Jews, that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Check out that attitude. The Gentiles, that's humility. They say, are you serious? You're going to preach the gospel? We get to hear it? This is amazing. 
Preacher's dream. <laughs> but see the humility in their heart. They'd never thought, well, I, well oh, hold on. You, you, you're in the synagogue? That's discrimination. You should be out here too. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, well, we're Gentile. You know, we're out. And then suddenly, what, we can get brought in on? We can hear the message and they're rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. See, it's, they understand this is grace. It's grace that I've got to hear. This is amazing mercy that I've even had the opportunity to hear this message of eternal life. Topsy-turvy to our culture. You need grace. You need grace. Finally, the sovereignty of God. Here's what sovereignty is. Sovereignty is absolute authority that he can do what he likes, when he wants, never has to give an account, never has to ask permission. That's God. He doesn't know what it's like to submit something to a board and wait for the decision. He does it. He never, has, he never gets hauled up. Why did you do that? No, he doesn't have to give an account. He doesn't. He's unaccountable. Completely unaccountable. Isn't it good that he's morally perfect? <laughs> I mean, otherwise it's frightening. He can absolutely do whatever he likes with whatever he likes because it all belongs to him. Nothing belongs to you. You're a tenant. You might think, well, I own my house, they're just renting. No, you're a tenant. We're all tenants. The earth and everything in it belong to him. He's utterly sovereign. He has all authority. Everything is his. You are his property. He can do with you as he pleases. That's the sovereignty of God. Wonderfully, this means that he can save in unusual ways. We're told that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. He hadn't heard the Gospel. To be filled with the Spirit is, is, is a sign in the New Testament of being saved, being born again. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit when he heard Mary's voice. God can save without people hearing the Gospel. That is not his normal way, but he can do it. You hear stories of many, many people in the Muslim world who get saved through visions and dreams. Now, very often then, they want to, they search out for other believers to learn more and to be established and to do church, but they've got, they've been born again in their bed. Hallelujah. God can do it. I wouldn't be surprised if many, many babies just before the moment of abortion get saved. I wouldn't be at all surprised. God just, they're born again and they're with him. I wouldn't be at all surprised. God can do that. God can just save. He's sovereign. Here's how it works. There was a king called Nebuchadnezzar, a very proud king, and God warned him a number of times, deal with your pride. He didn't deal with his pride. I saying God turned him into some kind of weird animal for about seven years. And then after the seven years, the whole thing got reversed, which he was very glad about. And uh, here's what he says. Here's what he says in Daniel 4. He was previously, you know, totally, you know, didn't respect God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He used to say these sort of things about himself. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You can say what have you done, but you don't get an answer. This is humility. See, it's the sovereignty of God. He's completely, completely sovereign. So really to just back up, we've looked at the glory of God. We've looked at the justice of God. We've looked at the supremacy of God, the wisdom of God, the grace of God, and the sovereignty of God. 
I hope after that that you can come to terms with the fact that God knows what he's doing. Amen? I want to conclude by being slightly controversial. Often it is those who ask this question, what about those who never hear? Who are the people that have been most offended at having been targeted with the message? It strikes me that it's that slightly inconsistent. So someone, you've been sharing the gospel with them and they start complaining. Stop putting your beliefs down my throat. Stop forcing your opinions on me. Religion's a private thing, not a, pu- not a public thing. And then they say, well, what about those who've never heard? So it's unfair to share and it's unfair that people don't get to hear. How does that work? Either this thing should be shared or it should be kept to ourselves. Sometimes people resemble those Gentiles we read about who rejoice when they hear the gospel. It is my unfortunate and sad experience that usually people do not want to hear. I've been a believer for 18 years. Usually people do not want to hear. Usually people either respond with complete apathy or opposition. I've I've been told off at Camden Town Tube for preaching. I've been told off by a young lady who told me that what I was doing was completely outrageous and completely out of order. I'm sure if we got into a conversation, she would have at some point have told me that it's unfair that not everyone gets a chance to hear. <gasps> How does that work? How does that work? Stephen, who was martyred, the first martyr of the church, he experienced his opposition when he was preaching. Listen to what happened to him in Acts 7, verse 57. Those he was preaching to cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Ah, shut up! Very often that's what you meet when you preach the gospel. So what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. The question, what about those who never hear, is often used as a diversionary tactic. When people start to feel this thing is slightly convicting and arresting, they ask that question to throw the thing back out into the ether. Because it's easier to deal with out there. We mustn't do that. You must not do that. If you're here, you're not a believer, but that's the thing. You, you, you throw it out there, but you're actually using it as a diversionary tactic because it gets too close for comfort and you don't know how to respond. You mustn't do that. That's, ter- that's a terrible thing to do. It lacks integrity. Um, it's deceitful. And you need, to, you, need to just, you need to face up to the fact that this is a message that is for you. And if you are that concerned about those who haven't heard, here's the deal. Here's what I suggest to you. Listen to the message carefully. Repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then go and tell everyone you can find about Jesus. That's the best thing you can do for those who have never heard. That's the best way that you can serve them. In fact, that's the best thing all of us can do. I want to urge you, speak about Jesus. Do not let satanic intimidation, whether that's thoughts on the inside or pressure from the outside, do not let that govern you. People need to hear the gospel. Their response to the gospel is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is opening your mouth and telling them. It is vital that we share Jesus. Don't share church. Don't just share God, because that can mean a thousand things to a thousand people. Share Jesus Christ. It's so important, church. It is so If all the churches started to do this, you know, we could nail this thing in the next 40 years. In the next 40 years, every people group on the planet could easily be reached. And listen to what Jesus said, final quote from Scripture. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That word there is ethnos, it means people groups, it means clans. And then the end will come. 
then the end will come. There's a bit of work to be done. I want to urge you, get in on the mission. Get in on the mission. Do not be sidetracked by the pleasures and the comforts of this life. Get in on the mission. I'm not telling you to just live a horrible life. The Bible says God provides all things for our enjoyment. But I tell you, it's a fine line between enjoying God's blessings and then getting a place in your heart which becomes a weight on you and so you don't run as fast as you could. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. You become distracted by the cares of this life, by the anxieties or by the pleasures of any of these things. They can just become weights. And before you know it, you're not running like you used to. You go to pray and it's not there anymore. Or your hunger for the work dries up and you've just been, you've just been sidetracked. Guys, we live in such a um, self-centred society. I need to say this to you in love. It's not about you. It's not about you. There's something much bigger going on. There's something much more glorious going on. This, you've been brought into the big story of the universe. Act like it. Act like it. Be sacrificial in the way that you live. Give yourself to the Lord. Give yourself to what he's called you to. If he's called you to a demanding job, give yourself to that for his glory. Earn loads of money and give loads of it away. Shine your light in that cut and thrust environment and show that you're different. Speak up for Jesus. Live and work with integrity, with humility, and bring glory to the name of Christ in that place. Go for it. In the university, use your time well. Work hard. Approach your degree as worship. Shine out as an example in that to your, to your, to your, to your friends on campus. Use your time well. Time is such a precious commodity. Some of you students, listen, use it well. Don't, don't just whittle hours away on nonsense. It's so important. It's, there's, some, there's, there's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done. God amazingly has included us in it. I love this last thing here in this, in this quote. It will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. That means as evidence. The fact that we have this message to preach is evidence. You might be here sitting and thinking, well, give me proof of this message. The message is the evidence. On what grounds? Here's on what grounds. There is no other message. There's no, you might say, well, what about Islam? It's not a message. I'm sorry if that's offensive. It's not. I've looked into it. I've read up on it. The, if it's, you say, well, what is the message? You've got the five pillars and you've got the six articles. Okay? The five pillars are just what you do. That's not a message. The six articles are just believe in, uh, believe in, believe in God, Allah, believe in his angels, believe in his prophets, this kind of thing. It's very, very general. It's a very general thing. Buddhism is not a message. It's the fourfold path. Just try and do this, try and be nice, don't cause any harm. It's just what you do. There is no other message. The message itself is the evidence. The message is, is that God became flesh. The message is, is that he lived a vicarious life. That means he lived a life which, which worked uh, utter righteousness for the rest of humanity. He worked a life which, he lived a life that, that caused um, him to be utterly justified before the Father. He completely fulfilled the law of God. So that he can offer his righteousness as a gift to unrighteous people. He died vicariously. That means he died in your place. So that your judgment, condemnation and wrath can go on to him. It went on to him so you can be free from it. He died vicariously so you do not have to suffer the pangs of death for eternity. He rose again vicariously on your behalf so you can have eternal life. That is a message. <laughs> There's no other message. Every other message is just, it's counterfeit, it's you do this, you try to do this. It's not a message, it's moralism. 
It's try your best. It's try your hardest. You can wear certain clothes and do it. You can chant certain things and do it. But it's the same thing. Do certain things. It's not a message. There's one message. God's done it. God has done it. That's the message. That is the message. Hallelujah. Any questions? You're referring to when I spoke about making plans? Okay. Yeah, very good. I think we should be absolutely proactive. We should make plans. We should be responsible. Some of us don't do anywhere near enough of that. Absolutely. But we do it all with a humble heart, which acknowledges that at any moment, God can step in, close that door, open that one, bring in a surprise, and we don't freak out because it's ruined our plans. And I think that's a real challenge. I think that's a real challenge. Because you know what it's like? You start planning things, you get excited about them. Yeah? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And it begins. And so the whole time, you've got to guard your heart against, not against getting excited, but that heart, everything you do, you do in reference to him. That's what it means. So I'll make a plan to this, but it's in reference to, we submit it to you. That's why it says in James, don't say we'll go this, there this year, make some money, do that, then we'll go there. James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We should say this, we'll do this if the Lord wills. Now, I think it's good practice to actually say that because it reminds you, if the Lord wills. If the Lord. So be proactive, be organised, absolutely. But always, you're always doing it humbly if the Lord wills. Is that okay? okay. Seb. Yeah, about um, God being totally justified in condemning people who haven't heard the gospel. Yes. Um, so the reason that they know about God anyway is because of its true nature. Yes. Like, it seems it's obvious. But lots of my friends don't think it's at all obvious that um, nature points to God. And even if that's been created out of a culture of kind of of pride and don't want to do what God wants to do, Mm. if they genuinely don't think that that uh, is any evidence of God whatsoever, Mm. uh, and they haven't heard the gospel or anything, then uh, can God judge someone who has never had a clue that God exists? Very good. God can judge people on the fact that they, are, that they are made in his image and that they were made to love him and to, and to reflect his glory on the earth. Also, there's conscience. So the Bible says in Romans 2 about the Gentiles, they don't have the law like the Jews have the law. They've got the Ten Commandments. The Gentiles don't have that. But the work of the law is written on their hearts. Not the law written on their hearts. That's when you're born again. The work of the law. That means there's a sense inside of this is right, this is wrong. So every time you do something that mitigates against your own conscience, you are bringing judgment on yourself. Yeah? So even people say, well, I don't believe in absolute right and wrong. By their lifestyle, they clearly do. Because they're the one who's going, ah, when the paedophile does something. Do you know what I mean? They, we do believe in absolute right and wrong, all of us. And so, but you see, if, you, if, you, if you, you, say, you say certain things, you don't live up to them, you're a hypocrite, which we all are, you're inconsistent morally, which we all are, you deserve condemnation. Because you were not made for that. That is, you are a moral criminal every time you do that. But you're so used to doing it, you think it's okay. Yeah? So it's about, it's, so, but it's bad. It's really, really bad. Here's what we don't get. We were made for glory. 
We were actually made so that the creation would look to us and see God. And say, man, we were made for glory. We've fallen so far that we just think, well, it's normal. It's only normal because everyone else is like it. It's not what you're made for. And so on those grounds, God is absolutely just to condemn you if you do not repent. I think so, mate. Yes. ESV. Dif- different in yours. Okay. What did it say in yours? That's not a paraphrase issue, is it? I must have quoted the wrong verse. It's in that, it's in that um, dialogue, though. So if, okay, thank you, Matt. If it's not verse 28, it's Genesis 18. It's in the same dialogue. So you're in the right place. But, um, yeah. There are different versions of the Bible which have slightly different nuances, but it's nothing like what you just experienced then. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Oh, oh, one more. Ollie, yeah. How can it be sovereign? Okay. Repeat the question. Okay. So I'm saying that God is just and God is supreme, or sovereign, and yet how can God be supreme stroke sovereign in such an unjust world? Is that what you're saying? There's two sides to it. The first side is the day of judgment, when every wrong will be put right. But because we think about that so little and it holds such a low place in our mind, we tend to give it very little significance. Every wrong will be put right. Absolutely. Which is both encouraging and frightening. (laughs) Yeah? Because I'm not just a victim, I'm also a perpetrator. So every wrong will be put right. So there's that. Secondly, God, in his sovereignty, has ordained that mankind be in authority over the earth. Okay? Okay? God in his sovereignty and his consistency has not gone back on that. We have fallen and made the world what it is. So he is now redeeming that through Christ. And that redemption began at the cross and will go on to the new heavens and the new earth. And so the whole thing is being brought back and it will be brought back under Christ's lordship. So just because it, just because it is not just instantly, that is absolutely what God is doing through salvation history. It's okay. Okay. Should we worship the Lord? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Will you stand, band, come back up?